It's funny, uh, ironic, perhaps. We sang songs that, well, these songs were excellent. That's not <laughs> criticism. Praise God for the, the wonder of the mystery, right, and the awesome deeds that God has done. And when we think through those things and we center our, our wonder on Christ, um, that's just every day. That's just, Lord, please, please increase our, our wonder and our amazement at who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. Uh, we would give to you the glorious praise that you are due as your people. Amen. Uh, we have our standard Christmas texts, right? We read several of them today. We've read them throughout uh, the month of December, even some of them last night. One of the classics, obviously, Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, there's a promise made to kind of a loser of a king named Ahaz. We won't talk about him very much, but he was. Uh, the Lord said, I, I will give you a sign. You won't ask, not because you have faith, but because you lack it. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That promise we see kept or fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, where this text is quoted by Matthew, who loved quoting Old Testament passages and giving a fulfillment. He does that here. This is the angel speaking to Joseph, where he says, Take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Uh, Savior, it's the same as Yeshua or Joshua, the Lord saves. He will save his people from their sins. Then Matthew comments, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now you, I want to solve one of those inevitable eternal controversies that you may have. Is it Emmanuel with an I or Emmanuel with an E, right? Have you, have you wondered? I actually changed my notes today from Emmanuel with an E to I-manual or Emmanuel. Uh, it's just a Hebrew versus Greek difference. I looked it up for my sake and yours. It really just doesn't matter. It's just a transliteration difference. So the Hebrew uses an I, or what we would transliterate or bring into English is an I, and Greek uses more of an E letter, but then the ESV here uh, just keeps the Hebrew. So there you go. That's not the whole sermon. That's just a random point I decided to make. Uh, but, all right, let's go home, right? Let's get some presents open. This will be great, because uh, my kids are waiting. We, we made them wait. You're... Emmanuel means God with us. Oh, how many times have we heard this stated, right? Maybe it's one of the only Hebrew words. You probably know two Hebrew words. One is Emmanuel, the other is hallelujah, right? Emmanuel, God with us, hallelujah, command to praise God. When we marvel or we come across something that is wonderful, right? Uh, How easily we can go from awe to Eh. right? Grand Canyon, first time, saw that. I know I've used I'm in this, this loop mode of illustrations, forgive me for that, but in high school, got to see the Grand Canyon for the first time. I'm generally cynical and pessimistic. I was like, yeah, right, it'll be grand, and came upon this part. We stopped for lunch, and it looked like a, a moderate canyon at first, and I was like, you know, nah, all right, whatever, uh, but then we, that was actually just like this random 
exit point of it. It was at the North Rim. When we went this summer, I was trying to be like, where were we? Because I have these memories of where that was when I was a senior in high school and went on this trip. Uh, but when we actually walked up and saw the expanse of it, it did take my breath away. I'm stunned to one of the few moments of silence in my life. <laughs> Filled with wonder, right? And I've, and I've thought about that for whatever, two decades since that trip, almost. We went to see the Grand Canyon, and it was, it was great, but it was less great for me this time than it was last time. More grand for Leanne and the girls, specifically James was just like, it's the only exclusion is we just didn't want him to die. That was the goal of the trip. See cool stuff and don't die. But see, even something as, as wonderful and grand as the Grand Canyon, even, even a few times of looking at it just becomes a little bit less with a familiarity. And I think, I fear that that's what's happened with this idea of God with us in the person of Emmanuel. It's interesting that the way that the text in Matthew is laid out, call his name Jesus, fulfilling, you will call his name Emmanuel. Uh, But we don't have any record of anybody actually calling Jesus Emmanuel, right? And his name was not Jesus Emmanuel Christ, like I'm Peter James Ambler, like first, middle, and last. That's not what it was. Emmanuel was not a name. It was a title. It wasn't just, uh, it was who he was, but not just what, what he was called, right? Like Christ is a title of kingship, and Emmanuel is, is a title. It's a reality of who Jesus is, what Jesus was, that he truly was God with us. And it's Christmas season where we often remember, okay, right, the, the, the baby born as you were born as a baby, as human as you are. And so we can fall into one of these, we always end up leaning in one way, you know, over, go, over, over leaning in one direction or another. So it's Christmas time, maybe we, we over lean into the humanity, which is good. We need to emphasize that. But sometimes when you lean one direction, because just the way that gravity, I guess, works, you know, we, you're pulling away from something. And so on this day where we're like, hey, Jesus was born, don't forget, true human, we also need to remember that he was true God. And so in that one word, that one name, that one title, Emmanuel, God with us, we see these, this wonderful uh, reality on these two poles, God with humanity, God as humanity, God who became a human. Three, uh, three points to get us through this, but you know that has nothing to do with like, this will be short or long, we'll just get through it. The first, though, is this, this very idea of wonder, the wonder of Emmanuel, God with us. When we first think of who God is, we need to have that initial concept of God is creator, right? That's, that's the first really introduction that we have to his works as we open up the pages of scripture, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have to start with that creatorship because that moves into a rulership. He owns what he has made. God is uncreated. And we learn that from a number of different scriptures, right? But we, we see that very specifically in the distinction between creator and creation when the passage that echoes Genesis 1. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we can flip to John chapter 1. 
Remember how John chapter 1 starts off, where John, kind of with his Bible open to scroll, oh, you can't this way, it'd have to be this way, to Genesis 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, uh, well, we read that today, right? The Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were created through him. Without him, right, nothing was made that was made. It says it both ways. He made everything, and there's nothing that exists that he didn't make. So when we think of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, you need to remember that, that we're talking about the Creator. John 1, Colossians 1 says the same thing. We spent our time on that, verse 15, verse 16. Right? Made everything visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. And therefore, he is above, he is before all things. In, in, in him, all things hold together. We can go to Hebrews chapter 1, right? contrasting that old covenant revelation with the new covenant revelation. And in these, these past days, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Appreciate the authors of Scripture giving us that at the beginning of each of these passages, so it's easy to remember. How do we know Jesus is creator? John 1, Colossians 1. Hebrews 1. That's one part of this. That's the God part of Emmanuel, God with us. The creator God, the uncreated creator, became part of creation. Right? And if we can say that without there being sort of this, this kind of staticky disconnect in our minds, then I think that we've looked at it too many times and failed to see it. Because this, like, how does this even make sense? Like, how does it even work that you could have a creator, uncreated creator, enter and become part of creation? That's exactly the the marvelous, wonderful, astounding, incomprehensible truth that we see in this promise or this wonder of Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, Maybe some of you are going to get Legos today. Maybe some of you aren't going to get Legos today. Foreshadowing. But I had Legos growing up, also had little action figures or G.I. Joes or something like that, and I always wanted to play with them. I was pretty lousy at playing with them. Two older sisters, so they did Barbies, won't talk about that, but um, because of, I had to play with, actually I became a toy to them, uh, a dog, and it was humiliating. But I had my little Lego guys, I had my G.I. Joes, I wanted to set them up for these epic battles, and then it never worked. Have you ever experienced that frustration of you just wish that your toys would come to life like Toy Story was true and you could do something with those and how cool that would be? But it never did and then we'd get bored and then have to kind of clean them up and the battle never happened. How cool would it be to become a Lego guy and play with your Lego guys or to become a G.I. Joe or another type of soldier and then like get to do that? It would be really cool, but it'd also be kind of limiting, right? I mean, if you were a Lego, remember what a Lego guy looks like, right? And I'll have five fingers. They've got the C-cup hands, right? Not even really a posable thumb, just like that. And then the legs move funny. And so it's like if you knew what it was like to be humanity, human, and yet you were then reduced to becoming a Lego, it might seem cool because you can interact with your other Lego friends, but, but it also would be like this constricting limiting because of the freedom that you had known as a human being. I don't know if you guys are good at drawing or not. I am not good at drawing. So... I think of this also in this type of contrast, right, where the the fullness of being a human versus the restriction of being a Lego is obviously 
just minuscule difference in comparison to a creator God becoming part of his creation, becoming a human being. That's what happens with God with us. Or maybe if drawing is a better illustration for you, you can think of yourself in three dimensions with flesh and blood and uh, skin tones, colors, all of these different things, a, a high definition, beautiful picture, and then trying to imagine yourself as a stick figure, black and white, two-dimensional. Right? You start to think of the difference between one and the other, and yet again, that's really nothing in comparison to the distance uh, in, in every capacity between the eternal existence of God and the humanity that Jesus entered into. But yet that's the what? The, the wow, the wonder of, of God, the uncreated creator, Jesus, becoming part of creation. We read about this, too, in Philippians chapter 2. We have a number of passages that, we'll, uh, that I'll reference and flip to. Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about this even in a descent, which is helpful because that is really the way that we need to think about it, right? God who is high and lifted up, and then, then there's us humans. But he says this about Jesus, Paul does, Philippians chapter 2, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped." And now not grasped like, oh, I don't understand what that means. No, Jesus knew what it meant, but it's, it's like a clutched onto and guarded, I must maintain this at all costs. Instead, he, he had that with open hands. In obedience to his father, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And what does that mean? A servant, one who should be a servant of God, otherwise known as a human. Humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're supposed to pursue humility, right? Humility is a, a virtue. We're supposed to uh, not think less of ourselves, think of ourselves less and think of others and serve them, right? We know that that's th- something that we should pursue, something that we, we, we have produced in our hearts. And so if we would be like, do you want to be humble? I mean, probably you'd be like, yes, I, I do want to be more humble. But if I were to ask you, do you want to be humiliated? I, I think you would all say no. So we see that there's, there's something in a difference between a humility and a humiliation. I think there's an aspect of it of a voluntary versus involuntary. That which, that which we do, that which is done toward us. Where a humility is me making me low. Where a humiliation is you or someone else making me low. Right, and one we even see as a virtue, therefore there's an honor even in the, the lowness, whereas a humiliation, there's no honor, there's only shame. And Jesus going from the uncreated creator God of the universe to becoming part of his creation, where he became part of the creation and what that looked like was not just a humility, but was actually a humiliation in the way that he was treated. And that really transitions us from this this wonder, the distance between the creator God becoming part of creation, and then this second aspect of it that, as I think about Emmanuel, is that God, the glorious God, was despised. So let's, let's draw out these two. 
When I think of the glory of God and receiving that which he deserved, my mind goes to Isaiah chapter 6. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, lifted up. His train filled the temple, right? Seated on a throne, a throne like no other and a court like no other, with, a, with, with attendants like no other. They weren't just humans, they were angels. Angels with wings, six wings, wings that had, they had to cover their face because they, they didn't deserve to look on this one who was seated on the throne, covering their feet because it was a holy place they were in and they were flying. His train fills the temple, smoke fills it, fire, like what is this place? And they're shouting back and forth to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, like we heard read about today. The angels are just antiphonally shouting this back and forth. The whole room is just shaking, right? That's what it ought to be. That's the glory of God on display, and that's the proper response to it. When Isaiah enters that, right, he's just like, whoa, I want to be low. But God is the glorious king worshipped by angels, And that's Jesus. The Apostle John makes that clear. It's not like maybe it's Jesus. It's like Isaiah saw the Son of God seated on a throne. That is the, before he became human, that is Jesus, the Son of God, on that throne, where he belongs, being worshipped by angels as he deserves. God is glorious. Kids, can you imagine a really big birthday party for you? Not for somebody else, because nobody wants to imagine a birthday party for somebody else. So birthday party for you, right? And it is just decked out. If you like balloons, there are are lots of balloons. You don't like balloons, then there aren't balloons, right? Just whatever your imagination wants. Banners, balloons, huge cake, amazing, all for you. All of your friends come. But instead of coming to celebrate with you on your special day, everybody who gathers there together spends the entire time making fun of you. None of them will play any of the games that you want to play, and they won't even let you have any of your own cake. Right? Do you see how, like, wrong that is? Like, this is, it's like, guys, my day, my time, my cake. What do you mean I can't have my cake? We see that sort of a disjoint, and so that's what we get to when we come to John chapter 1 that we read today. He came to his own people, his own place, And they did not receive him. That's this disconnect of the glorious God, the glorious king worshipped by angels, being despised, enduring shame, rejection, and betrayal. We see that in Luke chapter 2 in the the birth narrative of that, right? You've heard it probably a hundred times. It's like, oh, he should have been born in a castle, born in a palace, right? Soft clothes, soft bed. All of these things that should have happened yet did not take place. Instead, we read of a very lowly birth to a lowly individual. Right? Even the announcements of that, not made to princes and kings, but made to shepherds. And as Keith talked about last night, if you were here, shepherd being a, a lowly field. Now imagine whatever, whatever job you think, like, Ugh, glad I'm not that. All right, well, that's who was told by the angels about this. And then the kings came and gave him the treasures. Ah, some glory that he deserved. Right, then they had to flee for their lives because of these things that were happening. So little happened that should have. And so we see the response of of Herod to these type of things, right? Trying to murder him. 
Jesus' family thought he was crazy. His mothers, his brothers and sisters, trying to bring him away from the crowds because of what he was treating. The Pharisees opposed him. The crowds of followers, hundreds if not thousands of people were like, yes, we are all with you. And then they're like, ah, no, we're not. You're crazy. We're gone. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. The rest of his disciples all abandoned him. The people rejected him. Pilate denied him justice. And then the Romans murdered him. Do you see the contrast between Isaiah chapter 6 and the account of Jesus in the Gospels? Do you see the descent, the humiliating descent from the throne of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6 to the cross betrayed, abandoned, and executed, right? Shouldn't our minds just, there, there should be like a gap between God and us that that with binds together that just doesn't make any sense. Yet that's the truth of what this is. The uncreated creator became part of his creation. The glorious God was despised. There's a third, the sinless God entered a sinful world. God, the perfect, sinless one, entered a sinful world. If coffee was righteousness, I would be holy. Fresh ground, always, right? Hot water, some coffee makers that just don't get the water hot enough. Ground coffee is ground, it's dirt, just throw it out. A proper ratio of coffee to water measured by grams has to be black or you're just not drinking coffee, you're drinking something else. My my tastes are too refined to drink poor coffee or so I would like to believe. Uh, Yes, I am a snob. All those things actually I do believe because I'm delusional, but coffee isn't righteousness. God's will is righteousness. And what a silly, weak illustration, but Habakkuk says this of God, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. That doesn't mean that God's blind to that, like he misses it, because there's just countless other passages talking about the omniscience of God where it's like, you do see evil, you do see injustice, you see every sin, you draw everything, call everything to account. The eyes of the Lord in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So what is this talking about? It's just like, right, you could bring that type of coffee into my house or into my office. I'm just not going to do anything with it because, right, I have this this, uh, self-developed aversion, almost moral aversion, right? I have a problem to that less than my ideal coffee, right? God... It's like, it's that type of thing. It's like, I, I, I wouldn't even, like, get that out of my presence, right? Get that out of my sight. What? The evil and sinfulness that just, that envelops our world and has infected every part of us. Psalm 11, verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. James chapter 1, God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. God is holy. God is righteous. This holiness is a separateness from a sinful creation. Yet again, we see a distinction, not just in the fact that he is creator and we are created, but a distinction in the fact that he is holy and we are not. 
Nothing is holy like the Lord is holy. So allow that gap to start to be distinguished. There is none holy like the Lord. Both of those are quotations from various parts of the scriptures. When we think of holiness, we can think of a brightness, a shining, spotless purity. When I think of bright and shining and spotless, my mind goes to, to a bride on her wedding day, in her wedding dress, right? Just beautiful. Perfectly white, the hair, the makeup, the, the shoes, just, just everything, just ideal for that day. And then can you imagine a, a, a bride? Maybe it was your bride, my bride. It was your bride, or what you will be like. A handful of you, wherever you all are. Can you imagine that perfectly adorned going to muck out the pigsty or the cow pen. That, that bride in her full adorn, shoveling out manure or coming to the church a little bit early. That's a, this is not something that you will do. No one will allow you to do this. You wouldn't do this. That's just a perfectly adorned, ready for her wedding day and coming in, getting on her hands and knees and scrubbing the toilets in our bathroom. Like, no, 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 no. Right? It's just like, that's just wrong. Like, what? In, in every possible way. Why? Because there's something about that, that shining, pure brightness and the filth of the farm or the bathroom stall that just, they, they shouldn't be together. God is holy, pure, righteous, sinless, eternally and perfectly, and yet more spotless than a bride on her wedding day. It is the eternal Son of God who entered a sinful world. Like he just didn't belong here. Yet he didn't just kind of come and and skirt around it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He dove into the midst of the filth of the sinfulness of our world. Dove right into it, experienced temptation. So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest to us. Right? In, we have the, the wickedness of sinfulness and we have the, the other aspects of the curse that aren't necessarily moral, but still the suffering of sinfulness in a fallen world. Right? And Jesus knew the temptation toward the, that moral or immoral sinfulness. He never, never gave in to that temptation, but he knew that temptation. But he also didn't escape the broken fallenness. Right? We get sick because of the curse, because we live in a broken world. So Jesus would have gotten sick. I was like, well, where's the text for that? Like he experienced everything and sympathizes with our weakness. We get tired, Jesus got tired. We get hungry, Jesus got hungry. Sick, Jesus got sick. Right? In all of these different things, Jesus fully experienced humanity in a sinful, broken world, yet remained without sin in the midst of all of those things. But even more than just entering a sinful world is one of just the most astonishing realities that we read about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. More than just entering and enduring life in a sinful world, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for our sake, 
God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Right? He didn't just come to be tempted by sinfulness and to endure the effects of sinfulness cursing the broken world that we live in. But having gone unstained through all of it, God the Father took the, the weight of infinite, impure, unrighteous, unholy sinfulness and in some amazing way transferred it all onto his son to where the one who knew no sin now was sin. He didn't just enter a sinful world. He took sin on himself, all of the guilt, all of the filth, and was punished as sin itself, as if sin could become a person. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. And then God's wrath toward that sinfulness poured out on him so that we who are sinful could become the righteousness of God, a transfer taking place of these type of things. So, so we have the uncreated creator becoming part of creation, and we have the glorious king becoming despised, and we have the sinless one entering a sinful world and then descending into an, and even absorbing sin itself onto himself on the cross. And then the fourth mind-boggling aspect of it is that the living God died for us. God, the author of life, Christ, the author of life, died for us. Acts chapter 3 verse 14, um, read last week, and I'm so glad that I did, just somehow this particular title for Jesus had had skipped my uh, recollection at some point, but Peter is speaking uh, in the temple area, says, you denied the holy and righteous one, asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Jesus is the author of life, physical and spiritual, right? The son has been granted life and to give life to whoever he will. That's what Jesus spoke of himself. Or we could go to Acts chapter 17, where Paul is speaking to the men of Athens at this, this Areopagus, this Mars Hill area, all these secular philosophers and arguers, and he says to them, the God who made the world and everything in it, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Matter of fact, in him, in God, we live and move and have our very being. Your existence right now is not independent. It is dependent. It is dependent on the God who is the author of that life. And that author is Jesus. And yet, God, the author and giver of life, all things hold together in him just as he created them. In him right now, we are living and moving and having our very being. The breath that you are breathing is from him. And yet, God, the living God, the author of life, died for us. We sang about that in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. How can that be? How can the the one who is eternally and self-sufficiently alive and the, the definition of life and the giver of life 
How could he die? That's the miracle, the wonder of Emmanuel, God with us. And the end of that descent, entering into creation, entering into uh, to be despised and rejected, to become sin and then to die for our sins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. He was made sin. The punishment for our sin is death. So he died for our sins. Don't even really have an illustration for it. How does it, right? Is it, it's just too marvelous to communicate. These four incredible distances between us. This is the wonder of Emmanuel. That's point one. The wonder of Emmanuel. Hopefully calling your attention to, and my attention, my heart's attention back to how amazing this is. Then we have also the promise of Emmanuel. Because it's, it, is, it is not just a statement of, of wonder, God came to be with us, but it's also a, a promise, God with you, God with me, God with us, and not just then, God with us now. Because through faith in Jesus, entering into a relationship with God, with us, God continues to be with us. Have you, have you recalled that? That you are not alone? I will never leave you, will never forsake you. I'm with you. God is with you if you are his follower. We see this in the person of the Holy Spirit helping us. The Holy Spirit helps us now. That is God with us. John 14, Jesus promises this. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you. As orphans, I will come to you. Christ has come to us. Even when he ascended into heaven, even when he left, he came to be with his people, God with us, through the person of the Holy Spirit, who is with you every moment of every day, which can be both like terrifying, convicting, and comforting. And it's good for us to have, be mindful of both of those things. We know that it's not just like Jesus being at a distance and sending the Holy Spirit as if there wasn't a connection of the three persons in one God. Romans chapter 8, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, I love that. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit from Christ, the Spirit who in how, is the Spirit Christ? Yes and no, right? Three persons, one God, if Christ is in you by his Holy Spirit, this helper, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You are indwelt, not possessed as if you're not your own, but you're not alone dwelt in by God. God is with you. There's a promise in that. 
We see that in the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We see that in the second person of the Trinity. We, we have the promise of Emmanuel continuing. It's not like Jesus has forgotten us, but he continues to intercede for us. The omniscient Jesus knows what is happening in your life and prays for you constantly. Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? I condemn myself. You should condemn yourself. Others may condemn you. Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within we often sing about. Who is to condemn? Here's why nobody can condemn. Here's why, beginning of Romans 8, there is no condemnation. Why? Well, it's not because we're sinless, but it's because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God with us, God with you in the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and in the attention of Jesus praying for you. And then Paul goes on about what could separate us from Christ. And he says, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have the Holy Spirit helping us, the Son interceding for us. We have the Father receiving our prayers and that Hebrews chapter 4, we were already in this passage, but it, it then climaxes. We have this type of high priest. So because he's right there and he's already been asking on our behalf, it says, so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the Father's throne, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Father receives your prayers because God is with you. This is the promise that we have in the gospel. the full immensity and perfection of the Trinity with you. You received that promise. Do we take advantage of that promise? Do we marvel at it and appreciate it and worship the God who is with us? That's the present promise that we have right now. There's that, see, there's this past tense fact that I just marvel at of who Jesus was. And then the present reality that God and all of his fullness is somehow still with us. Even though he's physically absent, it's actually better for us, he says, because of the, the extent to which the Holy Spirit is with us. And then we have the hope of Emmanuel as well. So if there's a past and a present, this is the future. The, the confident expectation that we have that God will be with us forever. But you see it, right? It's underlined because that's Emmanuel. God with us. That's who Jesus was that's what we experience now, and that is the hope that we confidently wait for in the future. The words of Jesus, yet again, John chapter 14, my father's house, there are many rooms or mansions if they fit that better. If it were not so, what I've told you, I go to prepare a place for you, for you, a room, a space for you to dwell if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Why would I make a room ready with your name on it and then not come get you so that you could live with me? I will come again. I will take you not to there. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. That's the, that's the hope of Emmanuel. God will be with us forever. 
We had this presence and fellowship with God that we were to enjoy. Adam and Eve knew that in the garden, walking with God. And you hear that, right? A physical walking with God morphs across Scripture into this spiritual walking with God. Enoch walking with God. And then he was not, for God took him. Be like, what was that? What was that like? Right? The, next, the past reference to that we had was this fellowship in the garden. And somehow, even though he was a sinner, by grace that had been restored to Enoch in some way. But yet it wasn't the face-to-face. But then Moses does know him like a man knows someone face-to-face. So you see all of these different hints, and you read that, and you're like, man, I wish I could have that. I wish I knew what it was like to experience the fellowship walking with God in the garden. I wish it could be said of my life like Enoch. You know, Peter walked with God. I wish that I could know God like Moses knew God, like a friend speaking face-to-face, not, not a distant phone call, not just sending text messages, not just FaceTime, but talking, right? Communicating to these type of things. And that presence, that fellowship with God was lost in the garden. And even though we find hints of it in different places, it's all just temporary, by sinners, incomplete. It's not universal to all of God's people in the same way. And then, and then we come to Revelation chapter 21. Is that presence, visible presence, that fellowship, intimate fellowship with God that was lost in the garden will be restored in the new Jerusalem. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, the ending of it, that shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for those former things, they have passed away. We get further into Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, impure, unrighteous, unholy, stained, or broken. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God. Isaiah 6. Daniel Is that seven? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Not somewhere else. In it. And his servants, us, will worship him. They, we, will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There is the the hope, certain expectation for which we should long and wait. May it be today that God will be with us forever, which means that we will be with God forever. That, that union that we see in the person of Jesus Christ that we just wonder at, right? And the presence, the promise that we enjoy that right now is the hope bringing all of that together for eternity. You do not deserve that. I do not deserve that. Even knowing these truths, there's this, this wretched part of my heart that thinks that something else is better than, right? As, as if all of these things could actually somehow be, be trumped or, or pushed aside because of something that's wrapped with brown paper and sitting under a dead tree in my house. That we would long for things 
more than we would long for this promise, this hope. Our hearts are so skewed, but they'll be set right. I want my heart set right so that I love what is lovely and find satisfaction in who God is. I want you to be amazed at Jesus. I want to be amazed at Jesus. I want us to be amazed at Jesus, creator who became creation, glorious king who became despised, the sinless one who entered sinful world and became sin for us, the author of life who died. I want you to just mind blown, right? I want you to trust Jesus because Christ did all of that for us. For, for you, so that you could no longer be dead in your sins, but could be alive in his righteousness and know God with you. So that you would not overlook that, but you would marvel at it. That you would know that promise as your own and have this hope as a certainty for you and for your eternity. So I want you to trust in Jesus. Don't trust yourself. Trust him. I want you to know and love Jesus now and forever. That's what I want. And there's that Romans 7, because I want it except for all those times that I don't want it. But when I don't want it, I hate that I don't want it, because I want it, (laughs) right? Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I want you to know and love Jesus. I want you to do that now to know that now, and I want you to know and love him forever. Emmanuel, God with us, then and now and forever. Father, thank you for Jesus. He is everything that we need and everything that we have. Praise be to his name forever. Amen.